Take your Bibles and let's head to the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 2, right in the section where the Lord has sent some letters to churches, and it is instructive and wonderfully encouraging, and in some ways, even as you'll see tonight, alarming. It's alarming. These are messages given to the people of God, a list of seven churches at the time spread all through Asia Minor and... uh, they really do represent truth that all of us ought to think about and remember that in various seasons of the life of the church, whatever they may be for us, the principles here that Jesus gives to these seven churches are crucial. They're critical, absolutely critical to our understanding of how to follow Christ faithfully and how to be faithful even if we have to repent of something that he might have against us. Last time we looked at that first letter in chapter 2, the the letter to the church of Ephesus, and we come now to verse 8 through 11, and we're looking really now at the message that the Lord gives to the church at Smyrna. I want to just mention at the outset here that, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but when enemies of the gospel in various parts of the world torture Christians, have you ever noticed that All they want is nothing more than some kind of verbal renouncement of the faith. That's all they really ever want. After they've inflicted all the pain that they're going to inflict, if they can produce some some half-conscious denial of association with Jesus, they're instantly satisfied, and you wonder why. Why are they instantly satisfied with that? What have they really gained? What is the actual trophy if under violent suffering... A believer momentarily wavers in his faith. Can an enemy of the cross actually snatch a believer from the Father's hand? No. In fact, the torturers and the persecutors achieve no moral victory at all. And if they're convinced that they can pry a soul from God's saving power and destroy that soul in eternity, then why not, for the Christian, dispense with the torture and just kill them? I mean, if they thought they could destroy a soul in hell and had the power of taking a soul away from God that God has saved, why not just dispense with all the torture and trying to get a verbal recantation and just take their life? I mean, if they really believe they can destroy souls and have power over God, why not simply silence all professing Christians by instant death rather than some forced expression of human frailty? The answer is because Satan knows He knows that he has no true power over one of God's redeemed. Satan is a created being. Though he exists in the supernatural sphere and he has immense power in that sphere, he knows that temporal mayhem is all he can ultimately affect. That's it. Just earthly mayhem. After all, he is the prince of this world and no more. Satan's always at work. He's always trying to demonstrate on the earth that God's power is inferior to his own. If God saves souls and God then saves them and promises to keep them forever, Satan's aim is to expose God's inability to pull that off, to make it really happen. In the book of Job, we learn that Satan accused God of shielding Job, insulating him. He accused God of insulating Job from some sort of faith-crushing trauma. 
That was the slander. That God insulated Job from Satan's power as a way to mask God's inability to sustain someone. That was his accusation. You know, you can't really sustain with your power. The only reason that you, you are able to do it with Job at this point is because you've insulated him from what I'd want to do to him. Of course, the irony is lost on Satan. <laughs> One wonders how the irony escapes the devil in that he, acclaim, he claims to have ultimate power while accusing God of unjustly holding him back. He's, as J.I. Packer said, lost a screw in his mind. <laughs> Nevertheless, every true believer out of which Satan can compel a moment, just a moment of wavering faith, that becomes the devil's only proof of the power of evil. When, like the Apostle Peter, a believer's faith under some extreme duress uh, wavers and the kingdom of darkness congratulates itself because it gains some temporal, some earthly victory, Satan knows that's all that hell can achieve in the believer's life. And so what else are they going to celebrate? They can never retake dominion over death. And the grave that is wholly won by Christ cannot be assailed by Satan. He, he, Christ has won the ultimate victory and Satan knows it. It is won forever. Death is no longer master over him, Romans 6, 9. And so the, the ferocity of hell and its fury, Satan's ruinous conduct, it frightens Christians for sure. It may frighten us into moments of fear. It may frighten us into a lack of boldness. It may frighten some into a rare, delirious retraction in the midst of some pain that they've experienced under persecution. But those evil trophies are just cheap trinkets. They're nothing. They're nothing. They're just fool's gold compared to the crown jewels of Christ and his power, which cannot be assailed. Here is the promise from Jesus, John 6, 40. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There's the promise. And that promise from our Savior became an anchor for the soul of every precious believer in the church in Smyrna. And through this message delivered to them, then every local fellowship in the history of the church is chained to that same anchor. Through the history of the church, whenever Christians have been violently, tar violently targeted, whenever we've been threatened, whenever death is lurking around every corner, we've stood on this single principle that death actually threatens nothing at all for the believer. So I'm relieved to have this letter. I'm so delighted. I'm so grateful that God would give us this particular letter among the seven because we desperately need to know what he told Smyrna. We desperately need to know with conviction that he's watching over us and that he knows just what promises and principles that we will need to practically apply them when we face the same thing. Notice Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, 
but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna, oh, wow, what an amazing little congregation. We, we would say grace was planted right in the middle of darkness in this situation. The local church here has often been called the greatly afflicted church or the persecuted church, and for good reason. It, it was a small group of believers. They're huddled together for ministry and for gospel outreach, but they gathered for worship and equipping right smack in the middle of terrifying and violent attacks directly pointed at their ministry and the people of their church. When you read commentaries, they always mention a few things about the providential way that God, God allowed a church to be a light in this city, particularly because though secular and though pagan, the, city, the city's name providentially points to the circumstance and in some ways a rich a demonstration of the association God has made with this church and persecution. Smyrna means bitter. That would be a, a good definition of the word. And that would be a good description of what's happened to this church. It's a translation of a common Old Testament term which you're aware of, myrrh. Smyrna's derivation comes from myrrh, and myrrh is, is a, an ointment for wounds or at times even an agent in the embalming process. And so here you have this providential way that God points in a pagan culture to this grace planted right in the middle of it. It's a church that will be severely wounded. It's a church that will need the balm of Christ. It is a church that will face death. Martyrdom will be her lot. The bitter taste of a fallen world is Smyrna's. As a city, Smyrna was wealthy, luxuriously wealthy, it boasted a gorgeous harbor. If you look on a map at Turkey today and you find Izmir, Turkey, it's basically the same harbor, maybe a little change in the landscape here and there, but ancient Smyrna was in that same spot. It was very accessible from the Aegean Sea because it was at the east end of the gulf that was on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea and it had deep, deep uh, harbor waters. Trade city, very picturesque. Smyrna has ancient Greek roots, but that's not what's most significant here. By the time John writes this letter, it was thoroughly under Roman rule and thoroughly under the Roman Empire. And history tells us that the emperor himself was worshipped, and the people in the city of Smyrna took emperor worship very seriously. For one thing, the law was that if you didn't bow down to the emperor, death was immediate. You must worship the emperor. The city was chosen as the site for the massive temple in honor of Tiberius, and you were to bow down. Historians tell us that through the centuries, many claimed that Smyrna was uh, really the birth, birthplace of Homer and, and an education center and uh, 
The disciplines of the sciences flourished there, so the history books tell us. Beyond just the worship of the emperor, though, there were all kinds of Greek influences. The city goes back to 1000 BC, so it goes back in its Greek influences, and, and uh, the main goddess in Smyrna was Nemesis. Nemesis was the goddess of conscience or the goddess of uh, guilt that would chase you down and bring the thought of retribution and justice. And they worshipped the goddess Nemesis. And it was centered in Smyrna in many ways. Think about this church. If you didn't comply, I mean, forget the Greek gods, forget how they might mystically allow you to exist in a culture and not necessarily bow down to the Greek gods, but not, not the worship of the emperor in Rome. They built a temple in honor of Tiberius. You had to do the daily rituals. You had to bow down. You had to swear allegiance. So for this little church, this is a massive situation. If death is the immediate threat, you only have to wait for a knock at the door, and it's over. In some way, it's over. All kinds of persecution went on leading up to such things, but if they could catch you in an, an absolute denouncing of Tiberius by worshiping Christ, you're going to die. Martyrdoms happened all the time in this city. So God planted a little church right in the middle of darkness. <laughs> I know sometimes we think of big cities and places on, you know, in our country that are really dark places and then you find a group of believers huddled somewhere in there, and, and they're faithful, and some of us don't want to even go through those towns because they're so evil and, and more Sodom and Gomorrah-esque to us than, than other cities, but then you find a little group of believers huddled together down there. Well, God plants churches in the midst of darkness like this, and He did the same here. And it is into that situation that Jesus writes a message gives it to the messenger, or he inspires a message, John writes it down, gives it to the messenger, and the messenger then goes to take it to the church. Notice verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, we cannot go further because you're you're noting what John is receiving here in his vision, what the Lord is doing. The Lord takes an element that he had spoken in the first chapter about Christ walking in the midst of his church, the nature of Christ, the nature of his lordship, the nature of his character, the penetrating knowledge that he has. And in each of the letters, out of chapter one, that opening salvo, you have these phrases pulled into the beginning of each of these letters. Meaningful to that church, meaningful in that letter in a specific way. And that's no different here. You go back to chapter one, and verse 18, and the scriptures say, and the living one, Jesus is speaking of himself in the midst of his churches. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is an important message to send in a letter personalized to the church at Smyrna. And so you see what happens in this vision. Verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. <clears throat> it's a great reminder of this church that they are being addressed by their master, their savior, their caretaker, their shepherd, their Lord. 
And what is he wanting them to know? Well, it's very simple. First, that he's eternal. He'd already said that. Walking in the midst of his churches, chapter 1, verse 18, he's eternal. You see that pulled into here, the first and the last. This is the one perfection of God that, that makes all other false gods exposed as false. God's eternality, his self-existence and his eternality separates him from all the other so-called gods. And how do we know that? Because he ordains all things. He knows the beginning from the end. He ordains everything from the beginning all the way to the end and everything in between. He calls it out before it happens, and it happens just like he says. And the prophets always said to those false religions, your gods can't do that. Our God can. That's what separates our God from yours. Yours are no gods. We have the only living and true God. On this one perfection, that reality hinges right here. He's the first and the last. Jesus is the eternal God. He watches over his church. He's watching over Smyrna. He knows the believers in Smyrna. Listen, Jesus knows Grace Emanuel Bible Church. And he knows her leadership. And he knows her people. He knows you. And he knows the false teachers among us that, have, that are waiting for their opportunity. He knows those that are deceived and think they're in the truth, but they've rejected God and he's given them over and there's just an opportunity somewhere down the road for Satan to stir them up. He knows the faint-hearted among us. He knows the weak. He knows the unruly. He knows us. He also knows Jupiter and West Palm and the counties we live in, and he knows the evil that lurks around every corner, and he knows what's coming. He knows the government. He knows the sinister plots that are coming to get rid of us. He knows the persecutions that are coming down the line. He knows our government and our country. He knows the land. He knows its borders. He knows who's coming and who's going, whom he's giving access to and whom he's not. And he's ordained all these things because he's the eternal God Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last and there's no God besides me. There it is. There is no God. They have all kinds of gods they talk about. The guy goes out, cuts down a tree, Isaiah said. He carves it up, cuts it in half, burns half of it for firewood, cooks his dinner on it. The other half he paints, carves up, and worships it. Can it get any more stupid? Did I just use the word stupid from the pulpit? Yeah. Sin makes you stupid. Why did the people in Smyrna need to know this? Because I'm ordaining this. I'm about to tell you what you're going to go through. And you're, you're saying, why don't you stop? I don't want to go through this. I have a purpose. I have a purpose. And then notice he says, I am he who was dead and has come to life. He is victor. I was dead, verse 18 of Revelation 1, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Pulled into here, I am he who was dead and has come to life. I'm the living one. This is why his words are so important, because his words are life, because he is life. In him was life, John 1, 4 and John 14, 6. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, Romans 6, 9. It was important for them to know this going into what he's about to tell them. It's very disturbing what he tells them. It's frightening. It's the kind of thing that wrenches your muscles and puts a cold sweat down your back. 
It's terrifying news. They have to know that it's coming from the eternal one and the victor. And notice his knowledge, verse 9. The Lord of life is speaking as the eternal one, the victor, and he has knowledge. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Let me just say here, don't ever imagine the Lord doesn't know what's being done in dark corners and secret plotting chambers. And don't ever wonder whether the Lord knows every detail of how someone's hatred for Christ has come down upon you, upon your job, upon your life, whether it's subtle or whether it's blatant. Don't wonder. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. Hmm. A lot of backroom plottings when Jesus was on the earth. There's a lot of backroom plottings today. There's some real hostility growing, isn't it? Against any vestige of Christianity. In Jesus' day, the Jews would plot against him in dark corners and secret chambers, and, and they would set up these plots as if they had the whole thing sewn up, a nice, neat package. But there is no creature hidden from God's sight. And by the way, the writer says in the book of Hebrews that you will have to do with him. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Or in other words, to whom you will answer. Everyone will answer. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 26. Therefore, don't fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes in all of his glory and his authority and power, every person ever plotted a single moment, whether privately, whether subtly, or openly and blatantly, everyone who wanted to carry it out and couldn't, everyone who carried it out, against Christians, against God, with hatred in their hearts, whether secret or open, Nothing covered will be left unrevealed and nothing hidden will be left unknown or hidden. Notice what he knows about them. First of all, he says, I know your heavy afflictions, your tribulation. It's, it's a common New Testament term, but it, it, it has a strong force here. It's a term typically used for calamities of a variety of kinds that bring an internal fear and pressure that's hard to live with. That's the idea here. It, it's the kind of trauma that if you were to go outside or open your door and you know there are secret plots lurking around the corners in your neighborhood and you have your children inside the house and you don't know if you can go to the market and get a piece of meat because the market marks you out and people are plotting and lying and, and watching you and knowing that fear, you can't sleep at night, and you're walking the halls of your house day and night, checking on your children every five minutes, and the internal anguish and turmoil of heart and soul that weighs on you heavy day and night, that is what's happening to Smyrna. That's this term. The fact is, they were hated, and they were being plotted against, and they were being imprisoned. I mean, can you imagine how it torments your mind when you see your friends dragged off and imprisoned and then threatened with death and then many of them thrown into the stadium as Polycarp was some 50 years later and, and he was burned but ultimately they wanted to let the lions out on him. 
and they had already done so many times with others. How frightening. How traumatic. How you would go home after watching your dear friends in the church ripped to shreds and wonder whether you could serve God at all. That's Smyrna. And in the calamities, there was an isolation that took place that brought about, it seems the construction of the Greek here indicates that it brought about poverty. Notice the way that it unfolds. I know your tribulation and your poverty. John is fond of this kind of construction. And it seems to me here best to take this as a poverty, a destitution that comes from the calamity. And it's beyond normal poverty. There's, there's all kinds of words that are, are given to us in the Scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament, for, for being needy or poor. There's even common words for just generally poor and without your basic needs. The term here is the strongest you can use, and it, it is the idea of a, an extreme poverty that leaves a person in the status of a destitute beggar. The believers in Smyrna, because of their light in the dark city and because of the persecution, have been brought to the place where they are begging for the basic necessities. They can't get them. The Lord comments on it here because he's highlighting the fact that those who hate the gospel love to put Christians out of the public square and out of the world of commerce and out of society's favor so that we have no access to basic needs of life. People who hate the gospel and stir up uh, hearts against the truth and hate Christians and want to persecute Christians, it's because they want to get us out of the public square. It's like John 3 says, they run from the light because their deeds are evil. They don't want them to be manifested. And in their hatred for Christians, they want Christians to be brought to the place where so much suffering is caused to the followers of Christ, short of death, they want to see us suffer. And it was no different than what was happening right here in Smyrna. And Jesus says, I know, I know what it's caused. I know they've cast you out of the public square. You can't do any commerce. I know that you've been left as destitute beggars. I know that. And I know that society around you is congratulating itself on their sovereign power over the very people who claim that God is all-powerful. Really? If God is all-powerful, why are you destitute and begging? We can do that to you. We have the power to do that to you. It's eerie, isn't it? You can almost hear Pilate's words to Jesus. Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or not? You can just hear it, how those who hate God congratulate themselves on temporal displays of power, cheap trinket victories that they can gain by putting a Christian to flight or to fear or to destitution. They love to imagine that afflicting believers is kind of their ace card. It's their proof that they're the captain of their own souls and there is no God that you say that there is. I'm not going to have to answer to any God that you claim that I'm going to have to answer to because I answer to no one but me. And by the way, if there's a God of the universe, he'll answer to us. 
Who does he think he is? In Smyrna, in the ancient context, if you read enough history, there were a variety of ways that they could put Christians in a, in a traumatic situation. But mostly they resorted to lies. Notice he says, I know the blasphemy. I know the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are, these are lies trumped up. It's wicked words, as you see in 3 John. Trumping up lies. Lies so that Christians can be officially charged with a crime. They want you out of the public square. The only way to do that is to officially charge you with some crime over which there is now mob rule and then you'll be jailed and eventually tortured and hopefully killed in their minds. And the typical slanders against Christians were that Christians were, were against the rule of Rome or against the emperor or they were political insurrectionists. They were plotting to overthrow something. Another slander in the ancient culture against Christians was that Christians were hypocrites because they claimed a holy life, but then behind the scenes they were after money and lust. And so there were lies about where Christians spent their time. Oh, I saw them over here in the brothel. Oh, I saw them over here with the temple priestess. Oh, I saw them over here behind uh, closed doors with money. And I saw them over here betraying a friend for, a, for a, some extra cash and over here taking a bribe from the juris prudence that they were involved in. It's, it's slander against their reputation. You know, if you just fast forward to our culture, we are in serious trouble when this begins. Photoshop. Fake news. Didn't we used to call that lies? Fake news, what is that? You just lied. You trumped up a slander. That's what you did. You lied. Why, why are you calling it fake news? But there will be fake news about Christians. They're really just lies. They're attempts to blaspheme our God and our character. Can they not Photoshop you into some picture? Can they not sort of splice together sermon content to make leaders of churches seem like they are hypocrites. Sure, that's all coming. Internet slander. What happens to someone when they're slandered on the internet today and the, and the, the mob of the internet doesn't even know the person? Their life gets ruined. Why? Because the shallow American culture in which we live, we love it so. We love to puff ourselves up by destroying other people. And after we've done it, we wipe our mouths, close our door, put on our next video, and then go to sleep. That's what American culture does. That's coming. They had their ancient version of it in Smyrna. He says here that the worst version of it came from some Jews. It's interesting. Descendants of Abraham. I don't believe he's talking here about when he says they are not Jews. I don't think he's saying they're not physical descendants. I think he's saying they, they aren't those who serve Christ. Apparently in Smyrna, some Jews had come to Christ and, and that's the worst thing that could happen. 
in Judaism was for somebody to defect from the law and your own righteousness and go after Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth. That was the worst thing. Yes, God was merciful, and when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews were saved. What a mercy from God. But it does not say how many dogged the heels of all those Jews who came to Christ and attacked them and persecuted them. And you look at Paul's ministry, and always behind him, after he'd argued in the synagogue that Christ was the Messiah, came this group of servants of Satan who were saying they were holy and had a relationship with God and were descendants of Abraham. They boasted in it. Their life was full of corruption and wickedness, and they hated Christ, and they hated his servants. And when a Jew came to Christ, that was the worst for them. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The blasphemy by those who say they're Jews, and they're, they're not. He's not saying they're not physical descendants. How do we know that? Because he uses the contrast. But they are a synagogue of Satan. That's the point. They're not Jews who actually love the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're those who boast Abraham's descendancy, and they, like the Jews Jesus spoke to in John 8, 44, are of their father, the devil. He said, you, you're of your father, the devil. If you, if you were of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you were a, a Jew who really understood the word of God, then you would follow me, you would love me, but because you hate me, it is proof that you are Satan's. You serve him. You know what you're all about? You're all about your own righteousness. And when you're all about your own righteousness, you're all about your own pride. You're all about puffing yourself up. You think you can climb up to God and you can demand that God accept your righteousness for what it is, even though it has flaws. That's you, he says. And by the way, that is a lie from hell that you could climb up to God on your own or that somehow God isn't as holy as he says he is and shouldn't hold you accountable to some lesser version of holiness. That's the point. Jesus says they may be physical descendants of Abraham, but here's what they do. I love the fact that he called them a synagogue of Satan. Oh, that is such a stinging reproof. You know what they do? They call you to worship in their synagogues, and they teach and instruct you as if they're giving you God's word. And all they've done is invited you into hell. They worship Satan. And how do, they, how do we know? It's proven by their hatred of the Christians in Smyrna. It's proven by their hatred of the Lord that the Christians in Smyrna serve. Man, the Lord knows. I know that you're being slandered. I know that. I know that it has brought destitution and you don't even know where you're going to get another meal for your little babies. I know that. And I know some are probably going to starve to death and you're going to be destitute and I know you can't go outside because another slander's around the corner and I know your friends have been torn apart in the stadium. I know. I know it. I see it. Nothing is hidden. But as I speak to you as the Lord of life, I know I, I can tell you there's a purpose in it, and it comes with a comfort and a promise. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear. Notice, behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. 
and you will have tribulation for 10 days. What a comforting promise. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Now, we read those words, and, and the first few words we just set aside. Don't fear. Well, yeah, but you just said what we're about to suffer. That's what I want to focus on. Lord, you just told us what we're about to suffer. I mean, could, could we talk about that? He says, do not fear. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. All right, more are going to jail. That you may be tested. What is God doing? Well, he never crushes your faith. He's not interested in crushing your faith. James 1 makes that very clear. Look at James 1. This is so absolutely rich. You're to consider it all joy when you encounter various tests, knowing that the testing of your faith, there it is, produces endurance. The, the language here in the New Testament is always the same. God never crushes a smoldering wick. He never takes real faith and squelches it so that it can't become robust. He actually puts it through the refining fires, and as it comes through the fires, it is so that the real, strong belief in God rises to the surface and becomes useful to you. It makes you fearless in the face of death. It produces endurance. You know what endurance is? Hupameno. The, 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 the willingness and ability. The longing for, the willingness, and the power to remain under something that is terrifying and troubling. The willingness to embrace it. Therefore, Paul said, most gladly, I will embrace my distresses and my persecutions. I will boast in them. Why? Because as I embrace them, I go away, my will goes away, and suddenly there's a surge of faith that happens in that moment. I'm strong when I was weak. That's it. I love that. Jesus says, I'm going to test you. I'm going to test your faith. And you're to let the test have its perfect result, its complete result, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. That's what he wants. I'm, I'm going to put you to the test. Some of you are going to go to jail. And, and the devil is, I'm giving him a hand in it. And I can see it. Behold, I want you to know that I can see it. And the persecution that's been is not going to end. What a hard thing to say to this sweet church. It's just not how we would operate. We would say, oh, Look, they're the last people. I mean, Ephesus, go ahead, test Ephesus. They've lost their first love. I mean, get after Pergamum. Go after Laodicea. I mean, please. Go after Sardis, the church that has a name, it's alive, but it's actually dead. Test them. Smyrna, Lord, why would you put them to the test like this? I have a purpose. I want you to overcome. Beloved, listen. Smyrna as a city is a dark, dark place. The people there, all the way up to the Jews who were acting worse than the Gentiles in persecution, this is absolutely staggering and ironic that the people who claim to know the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac are the worst persecutors, the most evil. They're perpetrating networks of blasphemy. What a dark place. But it's in that place where Satan is hoping to gain his greatest victory because he's hoping to say what he accused God of doing with Job. You see, you're insulating Smyrna. 
You remember what God did with Job? Okay. You may touch his life, but you won't take it. And you know, you would think Satan would argue at that point, well, what good is that? I can make him suffer all day long. You let me do that? Why don't you let me take his life? Oh, but no, Satan loves, the, loves his victories no matter how hollow. And once God gave him permission to go, he went. And he did his worst. And Job said what we sang this morning, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's right. Jesus warned Peter that Satan had demanded to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I've prayed for you. Oh, great words. Peter should have had confidence. You've prayed for me? Have you prayed for me? I can depend on that. No, he said, I've prayed for you, and after you've returned, I want you to strengthen others. Peter, you're going to fail. You're going to waver in your faith, and, and having wavered in your faith, it's going to strengthen your faith. And on the day of Pentecost, when all the hostile Jews are around, having having been part of the mob that crucified Jesus, you're going to say you killed your Messiah. And Satan will be mocked and his power will be overthrown once again and God will get the greatest victory in the middle of the worst darkness. So beloved, that's why Smyrna. That's why. Because God knows that Satan is swarming and he's swirling just like he did at the foot of the cross and just like he did in the garden and he thinks he can get a victory. He thinks he can get someone to give their soul back to him that God has saved. Some Jew somewhere in Smyrna. And in that context, God says, I'm going to test you. Satan's coming. I've given him permission to do it. And you will have tribulation. And notice that the Lord says, just 10 days. Listen, beloved, I know that you read that sometimes and think, why even one day? But listen, the Lord limits a test so that your faith is not overtaken. He promises it. I'm humbled to read that because that means Smyrna. Smyrna will handle 10 days of the worst. 10 full days. Imprisonment, threats, slander, death. They don't know who's going to be killed. They don't know who's going to be imprisoned, but some of you, he says. But for the sake of my children, I promised you, no test has overtaken you, but such is his common demand. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tested beyond, your able, beyond what you're able. Smyrna, in that moment, in the worst darkness, it's 10 days. 10 days and God is going to produce through that test a faith and they will overcome. I love that. What's the principle that pushed them through the 10 days. I mean, I'm sure they prayed all 10 days. I'm sure it was a 24-hour-a-day prayer session. I'm sure it was gathering families with your hands. I'm sure every knock at the door caused their heart to faint. And I'm sure they prayed through the entire 10 days, and every time someone got dragged away, they'd pray some more. What was the principle that drove them to the overcoming 10th day? Well, he tells them in verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt 
by the second death. <laughs> by the second death. You won't be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? It's the ultimate judgment. If you go to the end of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Look, if you have a part in the first resurrection, that is to say you're saved, and because Christ has conquered death, he gives his resurrection life to you, then you won't go all the way to the final judgment where there will be a second death. And it's not physical death. It is a raising up to meet the God of the universe as your judge, and you're sent into eternal death. Punishment, judgment. That's the second death. Verse, 20, or verse 6 of Revelation 20, over those who are part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power. We will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 14, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. There it is. The Gehenna, the, the ultimate hell, the punishment where there's separation from God and an eternal torment of your conscience that you know you were a rebel and you rejected him and the eternal fire and flame that won't be quenched, the pain of it, the agony of it, the trauma of it, the torture of it. Can't even fathom. That's the second death. Who's there? Revelation 21 verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's who's there. I've been reading sermons by New England pastor who went back and forth across the ocean, Ebenezer Pemberton. He was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards. His sermons are Absolutely riveting. And Soledad Gloria printed some. And um, there's a section in one of them that I just couldn't resist reading to you. He's talking about what the world might do to us, but what our perspective is to be about that. He said the believer's security is founded on their union to the Son of God, that is to say, His resurrection. And it's confirmed by an unalterable promise that nothing shall separate them from his love. In this situation, they may possess their souls in peace amidst the tempests which disturb the repose of the rest of mankind. The basis of their happiness remains unshaken in all the revolutions which take place in this lower world. Attached to their exalted head who holds the reins of universal empire, they shall finally overcome the power and policy of their enemies. They may be serene in the greatest dangers, secure in the severest trials, happy in the most afflicted condition. And the edicts of princes may banish them to the uncultivated deserts, and the fires of persecution consume all their earthly enjoyments. But if we belong to Christ, our happiness is out of the reach of these acts and disappointments. Secure of an invincible friend like Jesus, we need not fear the lightnings of heaven, the shakings of the earth, nor the flames that shall consume this habitable globe. Let the sun be covered with darkness, the moon withdraw her light, and this material universe sink into ruin. Let these tabernacles of clay be destroyed by the stroke of death, and this beautiful arrangement of flesh and blood return to its original dust. Let the illustrious day rather appear when the Son of God shall descend from heaven in radiant majesty and summon the trembling nations to stand at his impartial bar. 
the true believer in that moment will lift up his head with joy amidst these astonishing scenes and with a voice of triumph congratulate the appearance of his God and Savior. Clothed with his righteousness, he fears no condemnation. Animated by his spirit, he is sure to be found among the number of his friends. And if the judge is his friend, what can prejudice his happiness? That's preaching. That is serious, serious preaching. That's the promise. Whatever may befall us, if you overcome by faith, which God preserves and grants and strengthens in the test, you won't be hurt by the second death. You won't. Spurgeon said, when the time comes for you to die, you need not be afraid because death cannot separate you from God's love. Before him, Augustine said, we want to reach the kingdom of God, but we don't want to travel by the way of death. And yet, there stands necessity saying, this way, please. Do not hesitate, man, to go this way when this is the way that God came to you. Look, if the Savior died to secure you, then facing the jaws of death here, it's nothing. I love what D.L. Moody said, death may be the king of terrors, but Jesus is the king of kings. It's a precious thing, Piper said, beyond all words, especially in the hour of death, that we have a God whose nature is such that what pleases Him is not our work for Him, but our need for Him. That's right. In those moments, He will meet you. He will take care of your need with the promise that you will not be harmed by the second death. And it was, it was the infirmed, blind Helen Keller blind all her life, who said death is no more passing from one room into another. That's all it is. She said, there's no difference for me in death with the exception of one thing. In that other room, I'll be able to see. (laughs) He whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his feet in the grave, Matthew Henry said. That's it, beloved. Church at Smyrna was promised this great comfort. He who overcomes, what does that mean? On your own strength? No. He who believes, he who trusts God. Of course, you might be physically traumatized and under great duress, not know how you're going to take another breath. But in those moments, the Lord will meet you because he sustains your faith. Why? Because he's proving to the powers of darkness, you cannot snatch a soul from me. Oh, you might see one of my children waver in their faith. After all, my apostle Peter did. But after he returned and repented, he strengthened others. The blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. For we know, Paul says, that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the promise that got Smyrna through. King of kings has rendered death powerless. Nothing can separate his people from his saving love. 
and he always preserves to the end those whom he saves. Therefore, it is impossible to ultimately renounce the one who overcame our resistance in conversion. If he, by his sovereign grace, overcame your resistance to the gospel, then he will overcome any fear or timidity you have in facing the jaws of persecution. He will. And you will overcome, and he will give you the crown of life. That is to say, you will realize eternal life. It will come to you, and it will come to you abundantly with your Lord and Master, however you disappeared from this life. What a promise. That's what gets us through, not whether our laws can still take care of us or whether peace prevails in the land. Those would be nice things, but when the Lord takes them away and says to the powers of evil, you can have it, my children, because I put them in the midst of a dark country and a dark culture, and they're going to go through some testing, and I've limited the testing, but at the end of the testing, they're going to overcome, and they're going to prove that the, the power of death is rendered just that. It's powerless. You can't take my people away, God says. Is this not a sweet message for, for our church and the church of Jesus Christ, the true assembly of God, even in our culture, though we've not experienced any of this? If it's on the rise, go back and read the letter to Smyrna. Let's bow together. Lord, you're our, you're our life. You're our Savior. You're the first and the last. You overcome. There's still a body of believers in Smyrna, a church, an evangelical church in that place in Turkey. Could it be there, there's a traceable line all the way back to this message and every time the persecuted church has read this message in that very same plot of land where blood was spilt that the church then continued to overcome and maybe perhaps through the centuries you just wanted to demonstrate over and over again that your people they know that you're eternal they know that you are the victor they know that you have all knowledge of what is done to your people and you mark it all down and it will be made right And through the centuries, your church has known this comforting promise. Second death can't touch us. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. And there are no real threats in the universe against our salvation because we can't be separated from your love and we're in union with you. That is to say we're going to be raised as you were raised. It's done. And so neither life nor death nor Sword or peril or nakedness or destitution or slander or blasphemy, even the shedding of our blood in violence. It is passing from one room to the next, for the second death cannot touch your people. And when that second death comes to those who've rejected you, oh God, it will be so profound. They will see the folly of what they clung to here, they will see the evil of their rebellion and they will know in that instant that they will be a part of the second death and there is no recovery. Suddenly they will be broken and there will be no remedy. Wow. 
how would we fixate on that? Comfort us with these words. We're timid. We're feeble. We need testing that our faith might be strengthened. And forgive us for wavering. Sometimes someone just asked us point blank if we're a Christian at our job and, and over nothing, even perhaps the potential loss of a job, we would waver in our boldness. Strengthen us, Lord. We trust your faithfulness that no test overtakes us but such as is common and you always provide a way to endure it that we might be righteous and honor you. So whatever's ahead for our ministry, we pray that you would make us a light, grace in the midst of darkness, whatever it may come. We pledge our souls to you. We pledge our faith in your promises and we pledge our heads to heaven. And it's for your glory's sake and Lord, we we take this comfort as the intimate love that you have shown your people. And so may we live in light of it for, for your glory's sake, we pray. Amen.